0: A little recap, um, but I'm hoping that most of you can remember where we're up to, and if not, you can feign interest. Chapter 15 of 1 Samuel is an amazing passage, and it's amazing because it creates a few theological issues. You've just been singing to God. You've just been... wasn't that bad? You've just been singing and worshipping God. Let me introduce you to the God that you've just been worshipping. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. And so, listen now to the message from the Lord. He's going to, Samuel, the prophet, the spokesperson for God, has come to the king and he's going to deliver the very words from God to instruct the king to do a certain action. And this should make you incredibly uncomfortable really disturb your spirit. Because he's going to ask to do something that really is shocking. Let's look what he tells him to do. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, okay, this is from God, to the king, go, go, And this is what I want you to do. Attack the Amalekites. Totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Okay, you're beginning to paint a picture now. Don't spare them. Put to death the men. And the women. Put to death the women as well. This is our God. Unchanging God, by the way, isn't it? You know, we believe he's unchanging. Put to death the children. Sounds harsh, does it? Look over there, look. Little Zechariah. Zebedee. Zebedee. Sorry, went into the New Testament. Little Zebedee. Put to death, little Zebedee. Sorry. Children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. This is God. What do you think to that? Do we ignore passages like that? Do we pretend they're not actually in the Bible? Because there are several of these difficult passages for you and I to get round the fact that we come to church on a Sunday and we raise our hands and we worship this God who actually did that. And there are a couple of approaches you can take. You can say, well, that's just figuratively. It, It doesn't literally mean all those things. Let me tell you, that's rubbish. It does mean all those things. That's what your God my God, instructed the king of Israel to do. Shall we go home and pack in? Let me tell you what um, a very well-known atheist writer makes of that passage. There's a book out called The God Delusion. I can turn my phone on. Multitasking. Which I can't, obviously. There we go. This is what he's, I've written this out. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He is jealous and proud of it. He's petty, he's unjust, he's unforgiving, he's a control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser anyway he hates women <laughs> that's him one of them he's homophobic he's racist infantas- he kills children and he's a, he's a genocidal bully Donald not Donald Trump he might have used those words but it's actually from um, the God delusion Richard Dawkins mean, oh right no no it was describing God your God that's an atheist description of that passage. What's your description of that passage? Come on. What's your description of a passage in the Bible? What's it going on about? Yeah, well, that's true, and very true, because of our sin. Yeah, but actually, let, let me let me take that one. It's a, it's a great point. But that doesn't excuse that, does it? We might deserve it. They de- did they deserve it? You know, I mean, the kids haven't done anything wrong, have they? Isn't it hard? It, it's meant to make you uncomfortable. It's meant to make you uncomfortable. Let me just put it in the right frame of mind before we move on. Because now I've got your attention. There are two principles, there are many principles, but the two principles you need to get round this passage is this. You never, ever take a passage out of context, both culturally and historically. Those are golden rules in interpreting the Bible. If you don't do that, I can make it say anything you ask me to make it say. I can take any passage and twist it to suit stupid theology. Let me deal with a negative on this. There is never, ever a time any government or person can justify a holy war. This is a set of circumstances for Israel, the nation. You have to look at what God was doing with the nation. Let me go back in history. He took a nation out of Egypt... That were under bondage. He took them into the wilderness. Having done all the plagues. And destroyed the most powerful nation on earth. Egypt. Until such an extent where they pushed Israel out into the wilderness. And God miraculously would feed them. and, And give them water and provisions. All the way through the 40 years that were to follow in that wilderness. This is God. The God in the New Testament who declares he loves all people. And he took these people and the Amalekites attacked the weak and the vulnerable amongst them. There's something like two million people going through the wilderness following a pillar of cloud by the day and a fire at night. There is no doubt God's involved in this. And this group of people, this nation of Amalekites, actually rejected God. And if you reject God, there is judgment to come. Understand that. There is judgment. This loving God is not some hairy fairy. He's actually a holy God who will judge. And he spoke to Moses and said, right, because they attacked you, then I will discipline them. I will put them to death at some point in the future. But we have a God of grace. And the second principle in scripture is this. You always go to the highest revelation of a passage. And there is no higher revelation in the Bible than Jesus Christ. So you've got to read passages like this in the history, in the context of what's happening, and then also what is the Bible saying about God. And of course he demonstrates it in in Jesus. He demonstrates his love. And so you have this nation travelling through being attacked. And God's grace comes in. He waits three to four hundred years before he disciplines the Amalekites. And at any point in that three or four hundred years, any of those people could have come to him. We see that in, with Rahab, the prostitute. She comes to Israel and says, look, we all know about your God. It wasn't done in a vacuum. We know this living God is more powerful than anything else. And I want to be part of this people. And as a prostitute... As a low life, she was accepted into the nation of Israel. And not only that, she goes on and actually becomes in the lineage of Jesus himself. Nobody's outside the love of God. Doesn't matter what you've done in the past. But if you choose not to be part of the people, then actually, do you know what? Judgment will come. And this is what happened. God finally said, right, my grace is had time now. I will destroy those people. He's got an option, you see. He's got a nation, his nation, in the promised land. And he knows that what we're like. He knows exactly what they're like. And he knows exactly what like everyone in this room is like. We always want something else. We look at something over there. And we think, I've got all of this. So I'll be drawn to that. And God needed Israel... Called Israel to show something to the rest of the world. Now, let me tell you this they failed. And so God calls a different group of people. He calls people like you and me to show what actually Israel could have done. He knows if he leaves the Amalekites around that somehow they will infect the very people who will save the world. (laughs) Let me give you an illustration. I was asking God, how do I describe something like this? Does anyone remember the mountaineer who amputated his arm? There's a film out called 127 Hours. I was going to show it, but I thought I might put you off for your lunch. There's this guy. He's written a book called Between a Rock and a Hard Place, and you'll see what a great title it is. He goes out. He hasn't told anyone where he's gone. In 2003... And he's climbing around a crevasse. He falls down the crevasse and a rock comes along and the rock lands on his right arm. And he's trapped. He first of all attempts to shift the rock. It's far too heavy. He chips away at the rock. And now this man has got a pen knife, bottle of water, few bits of food, bit of string. Not a lot of stuff, really, to help you when you're stuck down the road, down the crevasse. And what he comes to the conclusion is this. He has five days in the crevasse. And he says, unless I can get out, I'm not going to get found. And he's been filming, sending messages to his family on his camcorder and everything. And this guy actually cuts off his own arm. What an amazing feat. What a desire to live. And there's all sorts on YouTube. I encourage you, go and listen to some of the interviews. He charges 23 grand for a session with him, as he's a motivational speaker. When you've chopped your arm off, you have good motivation. I do it for very little, but I've got both arms. Absolutely. But think about it. The only way out of that crevasse was to chop your arm off and it's a bit like this for the greater good for the greater good Israel had to remove the Amalekites sorry God had to remove the Amalekites does that help? do you understand? still awkward it still leaves us a little bit sick inside but it destroys Dawkins' comments let me tell you something I believe God loves these people I believe that God has to take decisions sometimes from a human point of view that actually he would much rather not take. That actually he loves them and if they would repent and turn to him then he would welcome them. We can never ever use passages like that to justify something like the Iraq war. And you know what? History shows sometimes the church has done that. Christian countries have suddenly thought they were God's people. Really? What about the Christians that are living in Iraq? Don't let them twist it. Alright. That was the instruction. Now we get to the good bit. Let's see what happens. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek, and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them, for you show kindness to all Israel. The Kenanites. actually Moses' father in law is a Kenanite. and they See, they're not they're not Jews, they're not Israelites, they're a different tribe, they aren't worshipping the living God. But actually God doesn't want to punish people. God wants you to come to know him. And so he shows his grace and his mercy. And he allows them to move. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites. Now the scene is set now. And then Saul attacked the Amalekites. All the way from Halivet to Shur. Near the eastern border of Egypt. And he took Agag king of the Amalekites alive and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword he'd done what, exactly what God had said he should do except something Agag is the king it's not his name it's actually a title it's a bit like Pharaoh so the king's still alive everyone else is dead is that what God asked him to do by the way no you got, you got the punchline okay But Saul and the army spurred Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. Oh dear. Oh dear. Was that what God asked him to do? Why did he do it then? Mmm. Bit like Joshua, that, wasn't it? Mmm. Mmm. These, they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. How like us Saul can be, or Saul was. Do you know, God sometimes comes to us and he says, do this. And we immediately do some of this. You know, the Bible's full of do's and don'ts, if you like. And how selective we can suddenly be. I I can do that one, right? I can do half of that one. I really don't want to do that one at all. Do you think that pleases God? It's a bit like I'm saying to Kay, well, she's 80% faithful. Would that please me? No, of course it wouldn't. I want a wife who's 100% faithful. And I've got one, just for the record, just for the tape, for the internet, the 7 billion people that might tune in, just to iron the discrepancy out. I have a faithful wife. Well, do you know what? The Bible describes us as the bride of Christ. Do you think God wants anyone less faithful than I want from my wife? God wants his people to be faithful. He wants us to stop pussyfooting about and choosing the ones that we like to do. He doesn't want us to have an agag egg in the cupboard or the good sheep or the good cattle put by for a rainy day. That's not what God's asking. God says, will you be faithful? I've asked you to do something. Jesus would come along later and say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's a great place to start by finding what those commandments are. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Do you know what? Let's just clarify this. There's nothing you can do that God can't see. You can switch the light off. You can do it in the dark. You can do it without anyone else ever knowing. But you'll never ever trick God. He sees everything. And that should, should do something inside of us. And, and this is your God, my God. I regret that I've met Saul king. I regret. Elsewhere the word in the, in the Bible is trans, translated repent. Does God Repent. Does God suddenly get up one morning and think, I didn't know he was going to do that. I thought God was omniscient. He was all-knowing. He knew what decisions we would take ahead of time. But there it is. I regret I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Do you know what I think? And hear what I'm saying. There are times in my Christian walk when I think God looks at me sometimes and thinks, I regret what Alan's doing. I actually regret calling him to be what he should be. That's quite sobering. It's quite alarming, really. He's not regretting, by the way, he hasn't made a mistake. He's regretting that Saul is not living up to who God asked him to be. The people of Israel wanted a king. God gave them what they asked for. God made it possible for Saul to be this person he should have been. But one of Saul's problems, as we've seen previously, was that he just didn't do what God asked him to do. He had a problem with obedience. It doesn't make God wrong. It makes Saul wrong. The other thing we find out is that our actions bring consequences. Always. If we do something that God has told us not to do, or we don't do something God has asked us to do, hear what I'm saying, hear what the Bible is saying, there will be consequences in your life. He's not carried out my instructions, and Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Angry at who? Angry at God? Angry at Saul? Angry at Saul? Angry that he's the prophet, the spokesperson. I don't know. Maybe all three. He's grieved. I think Samuel loved Saul. I really believe that he loved him. And that he wanted him to succeed. And he wanted the nation to be led properly. But it didn't happen. And so that broke his heart. Let's see what happens next. Early in the morning... It's always early in the morning. Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. And there he set up a monument in his own honour. Doesn't sound great, does it? (laughs) He set a monument up in his own honour and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Lots of people live this life on earth setting monuments to their own honour. And that can be anything. That can be anything. One day when we leave this this earth, you leave your monument behind. What are you going to? It can be a career. It can be a household. It can be whatever. But are you leaving the right monument with your life, with what God has given you God has given me, what does your life stand for? I get to do funerals. I might get to do some of your funerals. Don't worry, you can come to mine. It's often the case, isn't it? You get to say nice things after they've gone. How about saying nice things while we're all here? I wonder what people would say about, you know... If I was, if you could see your funeral, I wonder if you'd be interested in what people thought about you. One of the best funerals I've ever done, and, and you know, they're not nice, are they? I remember Vi, where's June? I remember Vi's funeral, and I got to speak about this old lady, an old lady who most people just didn't know. But, of course I'd spent time with Vi. She loved Jesus. She shared so many things on the car journeys that we did. And Vi was incredibly generous. Incredibly generous with her time, with what little money she had, with her wisdom and all those things. I stood at the front of the church and I could proclaim her epitaph. Vi touched people's lives. It's not about being at the front with a microphone or doing worship or what are those things. And she looked after Dilly. Of course she did. Of course she did. And do you know what? Let me tell you this. God sees Vy's. Hear what I'm saying? God sees Vy's. He knows what's important. The one thing Vi didn't do was leave a monument in her own honour. Which left a lot of memories. Move on, Graham. Thank you. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. Ever been around religious people? The Lord bless you. Just killed thousands. Have a nice day now. Okay, bless you. I've killed some kids. Well, bless you anyway. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Really? We know the text. We've got the book. Bless you. But Samuel said, What then is this? bleating what is happening here what's the bleating of the sheep in my ears he hasn't got tinnitus he can hear the sheep and he shouldn't have been able to your sins will find you out hear that what you think you get away with you do not get away with and he'll send someone to you and rebuke it what should he have done then what should Saul have done at that moment? Hang on. God's spokesman is in front of me. He knows I've messed up. What's Saul's response? What should he do? Should repent. What does repent mean? Yeah. He should have killed. Him. That would have got him out the, of out the way in the first instant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's lots of things we should do, isn't there, Vicky? <laughs> Oh, no, 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 I used plural. Right? There's lots of things we should do, I said. It wasn't personal. What is this lowing of the cattle that I hear? The sheep and cattle, and there should not be any of them in there. You think you got away with it, you didn't. Watch the slopey shoulders of Christians. I mean Saul. Okay. Saul answers, it's the soldiers. It's not me. Ever, ever seen that in the Bible before? Who was the first person who sinned? None of you said Eve. I was really disappointed. <laughs> well, actually, no, Adam is the one that sinned. Eve was deceived. But what does Adam do when God says to him, I've caught you out? Absolutely. And it's been like that for thousands of years since then. This woman you gave me. This woman that you gave me, God, if you give me a decent one, I wouldn't be in this mess. And does God accept that? Not at all. Well, that was said with gusto. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. No, he doesn't. And does he accept Saul's answer? The soldiers kept them Look, They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle. And they spared them to sacrifice to you, God. It's not what God asked, is it? Right? God, (laughs) he was telling a porky. That's technical in the Hebrew in the original uh, it's well it's Hebrew it's Old Testament we do that though right first of all we look for somebody else to blame and then if we can't find anybody else actually what we can do is we can sort of mitigate it well I got most of it right stop it it don't wash it really doesn't work with him and although we're laughing it's deadly serious. We totally destroyed the rest. Look, we got half of it right. Got three quarters of it right. Enough I think you're feeling very pastoral today. Enough Church Samuel said to Saul, Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Okay. Okay. Lovey dovey, tell me Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Do you remember the story? He used donkeys to get him in the right place, to get him in front of the prophet of God, to receive the word of the living Lord, to change his life, to make him head over all the nation. Nothing in Saul that really guaranteed that position, he came from the tribe of Benjamin and sometimes, you know what annoys me with Christians, you know what annoys me with some of you do you know some of you annoy me yeah (laughs) some of you don't realise what God can do with you what God can do with little old me little old you we limit him he can do anything. Anything at all. And he took this insignificant man, who never wanted the job by the way. He took him and he made him king over the nation. And Saul could have succeeded. I really, really believe this, that Saul could have succeeded as king. He could have had a dynasty. His, his family could have been kings after him. The previous preach in chapter 13 was about his disobedience costing Jonathan the kingship. Consequences of our actions. We don't live in isolation. And then he sent you on a mission. Let me say this over you now. You're on a mission. Everyone in this room is on a mission. You were small and insignificant and God called you. Not because there's anything there to call. He just chose you and loved you and sent you on a mission. Saul's mission, which is not yours, so do not hear what I am not saying. Right, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the killer Martians, I mean the Malachites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. That was Saul's mission. And he sent you on a mission. Yeah, go on, move on. Why did you not obey the Lord? This is where it comes down to. Why don't you just obey what God wants you to do? And I put myself at the front of the queue. Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? You just kept some back. You kept one man, some sheep and some cattle. And it's evil. Do you know, just to lighten the mood a little bit. Kay and I have been away for a couple, away for a couple of weeks. As hopefully you noticed. <laughs> hopefully you noticed. It wasn't hugely successful, was it? And and for the record it wasn't case fault. I don't suppose many of you thought it was. There's was two of us went on holiday, right? One case fault, do the maths. Why you were, no wonder you're at the front. I'm not confessing it. You're not Catholic. (laughs) It's not that. Do you know what I discovered? I discovered i are not like me sometimes. The trouble with going on holiday when there's only two of you and one of you is right, is that the one that's wrong, well, you have to cough it up, don't you? You You really have to face the fact. I've discovered caravaning brings the worst out in me. Absolutely. No, I don't want sympathy. I'm, I am I'm being very truthful here, and Kay knows how truthful this is. Caravaning brings something out of me that I didn't know even was in me. So what do I do? Do I bin the caravan or do I go caravaning again? Well done, Tina. Because the easy option is to say stuff this. Let's go Tenerife. <laughs> That's the sole answer. No, he didn't right. <laughs> <Quite unfair. laughs> no, no, on debrief day, listen, I surprised even my wife, which is good after fifteen years. I said, get we're going again. I will, in God's strength, get my head round this stuff what is it about? and we're not going into details <laughs> no. <laughs> No, we're back to Saul. Move the scripture on. (laughs) It's good. It's good to leave you hanging. Come to the preach in in October. We'll know. Move it on. That get me off the hook. But I did obey. Saul said I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag the king. We shouldn't have done that. Okay, let's pick it up. The soldiers. It's all your fault. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God. Oh, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to sacrifice them. We're going to really get it right this time. We're going to sacrifice them to the Lord, the God at Gilgal. He didn't ask that. Don't compromise. As you're all coming caravanning with us, move on. But, <laughs> not in the same caravan. But Samuel replied, this is a question now. This is a question. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Do you think God needs some dead cattle, Saul? Some smelly bits thrown on an altar? Do you think God's hungry? Does he he eat that or is he a vegetarian or what? Look and hear this. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey. And to heed is better than the fat of the rams. Saul, God doesn't need, your, doesn't need anything from you. He just needed you to do what he asked you to do. It hasn't changed in thousands of years. We don't do sacrifices, just for the record. We don't need that anymore. They did, because they... We're waiting for Christ. Christ has been. Once and for all the sacrifice is made. But it doesn't get us off the hook on the on the first part of it. Just obey. The problem is it's hard, isn't it? Or is it easy for some of you? Put your hand up if you always obey. Good. Good because we're all in the same boat, is the bit I mean. You see, before caravan, it had gone. And then I've had to repent because i just lied, of course. <laughs> For rebellion is like the sin of divination. Oh. oh, that's a bit of a kick. If I'd said to you all at the, at the beginning of the sermon, if I'd said to you, how many of you have you in, been involved in witchcraft this week? Is that your hand up? <laughs> how many of you have done witchcraft this week? Well, how many of you have actually been disobedient this week? You don't need to put my hands up. Well, it's not confession time. Let me finish. To God, that's the equivalent of witchcraft. And that should stun us. And really cause us to sit back on our heels. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. I know Dawn spoke on idolatry last week. I, well, I don't have any idols, God. Well, actually, it's equivalent every time you disobey what I'm asking you to do, every time, actually, that's what I see. Wow. I didn't know it was that serious, God. I just thought I could get away with that. But you see everything, God. There's nothing I can do in the dark or in the light that you can't see. Wow, that must really upset you, God. Really upset you. And do you look down at me and think I regret calling them as my child? Hmm. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. You had the word of the Lord, Saul. He has rejected you as king. Notice this and do not make the mistake of not noticing that word. He hadn't rejected Saul as a man. He'd rejected him in the role that he was. He still loved Saul, but Saul was no longer worthy to be the person that God had called him to be. Whenever God calls anybody, and please hear this, he equips the calling. He won't ask you to do anything that he asks you to do without giving you the ability to do that very thing. As that would make God a bit like Mr. Dawkins wants to make him. So having called and equipped you, there's still one bit that you've got to do. You've got to be obedient and you've got to do your bit in the calling. I meet people sometimes who actually say, I don't do any studying before I give a sermon because actually there's certain passages I can twist to make it the Holy Spirit will just come upon me and tell me what to say. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. I'm called to be a Bible teacher. It takes hours for me to study, hours, but he's, en- he's enabled me to enjoy the study, and gifted me, hopefully, to be able to deliver the stuff. If whatever God is calling you to do, He will gift you, but there's still an awful lot that you've got to do as well. And that's the bit Saul didn't grasp. But he's rejected now as king. In chapter 13, he lost his dynasty. Chapter 15, he loses his kingship. He doesn't stop being king for a long, long time. But in God's eyes, he's stopped. And God will immediately put plan B into action. I think God's probably on plan Z with me. Third time round. Let's have a look. And then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. You've caught me out now. I've sinned. Okay, is that the right answer though? I violated the Lord's command and in your instructions I was afraid of the men and so I gave in to them. Well, you're the king. Why would you be afraid of someone if God's asked you to do something? The two are not reconcilable. If you really believe God don't be afraid. Fear just stops us. So many times Christians are paralyzed by fear. We don't have to be. And now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. It's not going to change his mind. Saul, you've had your go. You've messed up more than once. We're moving on. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and tore. And it tore. It's a great metaphor, this. Move on. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom. So you just torn the hem of my, my long gown. And that's the equivalent, or just like what God is doing. Torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. And has given it to one of your neighbors. To one better than you. Really? To one better than you? Who's the new king coming on the block next week? King David. And what do we know about David ahead of time? What was his job? Shepherd. Did he have anything going for him as king? His choice? Did he always get it right? What was his biggest mistake? Adultery. He committed adultery. And murder. Murder. Doesn't sound like a great guy, does he? Israel's greatest king. We will get to those passages. Let's move on. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. God doesn't get up one morning and think, mistake, squash. Look, I didn't know they were going to do that. Squash. He doesn't change his mind. What has God spoken into your life? What has God asked you to do? Do you know? Or just blank stares? I have a question. Mm-hmm. I've got a thought. I knew that, that um, he, was going to, he was going to do this wrong before he anointed him. Saul wrong? Or David wrong? Saul. No. Yeah. Um, so, he hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't changed his mind. No. Did God? Okay, let's let's go to basics. Everyone, pay attention. Great question. God never makes a mistake. Do we agree? Does anybody think he ever makes a mistake? Okay, that's good news because if God called you to be His child, you and I have just agreed that God never makes a mistake. That's right. Do we agree, John, that you're his child? Do we agree that having called you, there was nothing in you that, just like Saul, but he called you to be his child and he asked you to live to a certain standard and have you always maintained the standard that God has asked you to be? No. It's exactly the same with Saul. He can't find a man on earth at all who will never make a mistake. And so what he does is he calls people and he equips them and gives them the opportunity to live up to a certain standard, knowing their weaknesses, knowing that they will fail, but it's in the failing how you deal with it. How did Saul deal with it? And that was a bad translation of what we're looking at here. This is the new NIV, the old NIV in the King James, shows a different, slightly different wording. So I know what you're picking up on, but it'll come out in a moment. Let's move it on. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people. Do you see this? Look, he knows he's messed up. He's more concerned what is happening around him with what other people will see. Do you see that? I've sinned, right? But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Look at the word up there. Your God. It's never Saul's God. He had every opportunity to make Saul, for Saul to choose to make him my God. But the one thing we know up to this chapter is it's always been your God. It's never never Saul's God. Having called, equipped to be king, right? still an onus on you. God doesn't do everything. You have a responsibility Everyone has a responsibility to fulfill what God is asking you to do. We cannot go before God, John, listen. We can't go before God and look Him in the face and say, you made a mistake. That's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. If there's any mistake made, the mistake will lie with me. Come back Honour me before people, but he's still your God, Samuel. We'll finish it, but let let me get to the passage I need to get to in the other book. Go ahead. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Really? What's that look like, Saul? We can come to church, we can raise our hands, we can do a little dance, we can say some words... It's all in here. It is to do with our hearts that God sees. Other people can see a different thing, but he knows the truth. And then Samuel said, We bring Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Okay, everyone else is dead. Surely things are going to look up now. Surely the bitterness of death is past. Move on. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agad to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Samuel fulfilled what Saul should have done. Move it on. And then Samuel left Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeth in of, of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. And though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Translated elsewhere, repented. It's hard, isn't it? I told you this passage is difficult. It causes some brain matter to be rattled. Work it out. God doesn't make a mistake, so why is he regretting? It can only be that Saul did not fulfill what God asked him to do. And as such, the line moves over to Judah now we'll talk at the end we get that you could even you could even indicate but, but what I don't want Christians to do is actually use Jesus as the get out of jail free card oh look I'm a believer Jesus died for my sins therefore I don't have to do what God asked me to do that's the danger what you've just gone down I can't have that. That cannot be the case. When Jesus stood up and announced his ministry in the synagogue, he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And he said, today is the day of the Lord's favour. Does anyone know what the second part of it is? Goes on. Who said? No. It goes on to say, but there will be a day of vengeance. There is a day of reckoning. It's not hairy-fairy. Mr. Dawkins, right? Mr. Dawkins, can you imagine what this guy's got to do? If he does not repent, and if he does not become a believer on earth, he will stand before the very God that he writes about, and God will say, you're going to get exactly what you asked for. The holiness of God will be satisfied. It can either be satisfied at the cross, or it will be satisfied another way. And that's a terrible thought. This isn't a game, is it? The bit I wanted to show you, look. Come out of that one and put the other scripture for me, please, Graham. Go just to Samuel, chapter 12. Okay, let me give you the background to this. Thank you, Graham. Okay. David is on the scene. David is king now. David can have anything he wants. And he should have been doing something. He should have gone out to war. But this particular season, David has has some time off. He went caravanning. But he hadn't left to go caravanning. He's on the roof and he looks out over the roof and he sees a woman bathing. And he's got loads of women. Having a woman wasn't the problem. It's having the wrong woman, which was the problem. That hasn't changed in thousands of years, does it? Okay. So look, he looks out and he sees this woman and he sends for her. She comes to him. He sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, and it then begins a fascinating get out of, how do I get out of this mess I've got myself into? Just because I'm king, and I abuse my situation. First of all, he sends for the husband and says, "Right, okay, come back from the battle, have a few drinks, go home, and hopefully sleep with your wife. She'll get she, you'll think the child's yours. Basically, she's pregnant. But this guy's a really decent chap." And he said, look, my mates are out on the battle. I'll sleep on the doorpost. There's not many of those guys around, are they? So then David thinks of another plan. I know, we'll kill him off then. So he gets him in the front of the battle. And he, and he gets killed. And then he sends for Bathsheba. And she says, right, okay, come and live in the palace. And uh, look, I'm king. I can get away with anything I like. God didn't see that one. But God does see that. And he sends Nathan, the prophet. Just like Samuel And he comes and he delivers a message. And the message is fascinating. Nathan tells a story about a guy who just had one lamb. Just one little old lamb. And it was a household pet. And he used to feed it and look after it. He used to eat at his table. And it was a family pet. And then this rich man said, Oh, well, I've got a guest. I know what I'll do. I'll feed him some lamb. But I won't feed him one of mine. I'll take that one. And because he's rich and powerful... Nathan tells David, look, he kills this lamb. The guy only had one lamb. It was just a little lamb, an insignificant lamb. And David riles. And he says, look, this man deserves restitution. This is wrong. And Nathan turns to him and says, you're the man. You're the one that did that. That was just an, illu- an illustration. But watch what David does. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. I really did do that. I'm guilty as charged. Everyone in this room is guilty as charged. We might look around and blame someone else, but we're all guilty as charged. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to front it up that we're actually we're guilty as charged. When we mess up, if you've messed up this week and the next time you mess up don't make an excuse, don't blame the soldiers don't blame the woman or your partner or whatever you are God, God I messed up no excuse I'm going to try not to mess up anymore I can't undo what I've done do you know the consequences of that? The consequences of David's actions was this. The child died. The child died. Our actions bring consequences. That's a good reason in itself not to mess up. But what about trying to get it right without messing up? How do we do that? I want to quickly, because I'm running out of time, I want to quickly look at a couple of things. Think back to our story think back to Saul, he has the nation's history. I can come to the front of a church and I can give you a right blast. Do you know I can frighten you? I can frighten you with scripture. But fear won't make you obey. Fear will never do that. It does it for a season. right? Saul had his, Israel's history. He he. he, he Israel itself, remember Mount Sinai, the plagues, Saul had seen the awesomeness of God in battle. He knows God is alive. That's not the issue. So fear won't do it. How do I get you to, how does God, and how do I get you to obey God? Prosperity. Do you want me to preach prosperity gospel? Do you want me to tell you that the more money you put in the offering, the more you'll have? I'll never do that. You can go to another church and you can hear that sort of stuff. That's rubbish. They were in the promised land. They had everything that they needed. So prosperity won't get you to obey him either. Actually, when you're more prosperous, when everything's going really well, that's when you're at the most risk. Religion. Suppose we make it all about religion. You can sit in the same seat every week. You can same, sing this, we can sing the same songs every week. I can put a gown on. I can start wearing a dog collar. <laughs> I can do lots of things to make us religious. But they were the most religious nation that ever lived. So religion won't make you do it either. There is only one way, one way that you will ever obey. Pop the psalm up, please, for me. I've been here on this one. When I had the most horrendous struggle in my life, this is the psalm that brought me through. Psalm 51. When David fronted up what he'd done with Bathsheba and Uriah, this is David's thoughts on a piece of paper. And I want to end with this, right? I end with it, and I end with it as a challenge as well. We'll stop at verse 10, I think. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. Sometimes we need God's mercy. You've got it, by the way. But it doesn't hurt just to ask him, have mercy on me, God. According to your unfailing love, it's not according to me. I, I know my weaknesses. I am the world's worst caravaner. I've fronted it up, and I've asked her to forgive me, and I've first and foremost asked him to forgive me. According to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion. Blot it out. Blot out my transgressions. What does that mean? It means wipe them out. I could strangle some of you. Right? The number of times you keep reminding me of what you've done. I'm old now. I forget this stuff. I don't need to know. But the good news is he do not want to know either. Why do we live in the past failures that we make? Stop it. Be obedient. Stop being disobedient. Sometimes it's a bit like a scab, isn't it? We keep picking over it. I know, I'll have an itch this week. Stop it. Believe this stuff. Blot out my transgressions. And they were bigger than yours. Unless you're a murderer and adulterer, everyone else leave. Oh, you're all still here. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. I know what my problems are. And my sins always before me, against you and you only have I sinned and do what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. God's dead right. Let me hear this word: you're all guilty. Me too. Guilty is charged. God, sinner, and he's justified when he judges. And he'll either judge you or he'll judge Christ. What's it going to be? Christ. No brainer. Surely I was sinful at birth. We live with a nine month old. And I tell you what. He's a little sinner. (laughs) He's a little sinner. We love him to bits. He's in Cornwall. The house is quiet. But he's a sinner. He's developing it now. And so did you and I. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It begins. You teach them how to behave. Not how to not behave. Move them on. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. And blot out all my iniquity. And we will end with this verse. This is the secret to the Christian life. This is the only way you can do this walk. I have said this prayer, I don't know, God could tell me but hundreds of times. Hundreds of times I've had to ask, I've come to God because the problem is this. Somebody once described it the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We've all got one and it's evil. But he'll give you a new one. He wants to give you a new heart. Creating me a pure heart. Not fix the old one. You need a new one. And when we mess up. And keep messing up and struggling. And getting it wrong. That was David's secret. That's what Saul never got. That's what Saul didn't understand. It was someone else's God for Saul. Saul. But for David, who wasn't perfect, he could say to God, Create in me a pure heart. I encourage you now, right? Before we go into more worship, how about having a minute and just if you want to ask God for a new heart what a great opportunity. Or is that just boring? No. It's real grown-up stuff. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's the secret to this walk. Okay, we'll give in a minute, then Graham will put the worship on. Amen.